You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Ancestral Elements Podcast. This is episode 33, Fats, a Macronutrient Controversy. This will be the last episode on the macronutrient little mini-series that I've been doing. And I wanted to save this one for last because there's a lot of controversy surrounding fat. I'm sure all of you listening are very well aware of, you know, the argument between good fats and bad fats and what type of fats you should be getting in and, and what all that means for cholesterol. So there's a lot of questions and a lot of kind of rhetoric and frankly, unanswered questions surrounding this macronutrient of fat. So I just kind of want to lay it out for you as best as I can. We'll walk through an ancestral approach to fat eating. We're going to walk through a historical kind of industrial approach to fat consumption and where that's led us, and then kind of where we are on the fringes of nutrition science and kind of the overarching consensus that most scientists have at this very moment. Okay, so this macronutrient we call fat. On a calorie level, so on an energetic level, this macronutrient is the most dense out of any other macronutrient. So it has 9 kilocalories per gram, which is essentially double of what protein and carbohydrates are. Remember, those have 4 kilocalories per gram. So this is a very, very dense energy source that our body utilizes on many, many different levels. So looking at it from just a calorie perspective, it's a lot of bang for your buck. You don't need that much to get a really, really rich energy source. And traditionally speaking, fat was considered to be one of the best nutrients, probably the single best nutrient that anybody could be getting in. It was considered a health food. Up until actually very, very recently, kind of early 1900s, you start seeing the narrative change a little bit and the attitude towards fat kind of change. And I'll go into why a little bit later. But just from a historical and an energetic perspective, this macronutrient kind of stands in a category by itself. And that needs to be said kind of right off the bat. Okay, so I want to look at this nutrient from an anthropological perspective. Because when you go back in history, the quest for fat gets really interesting. People craved fat. They would go way outside of their way to ensure that they had enough fat on hand whenever they could. That fat was coming from animals, predominantly. There were some fruits and some plants that were in tubers that were utilized a little bit that had some fat content to them. Predominantly, your solid, reliable resource for fat was from animals, whether it was from fish or marrow bones or kidney fat or fat behind the eyeballs of animals, it was cherished because, again, it was such a high-dense fuel for people. Depending on where you were living, if you were in the kind of northern latitudes, let's say up close to the Arctic Circle, you need a ton of excess fat just to stay warm and make it through those cold winter months because you're sheltered in for months and months on end. And you need kind of an insulating nutrient to keep yourself alive. So fat 
in a northern latitude like that is invaluable. You literally die without it. And that's why you see a lot of the Inuit population of, let's say, near the Arctic, predominantly having a diet centered around fat. Now, in the summer months, because they had essentially a 24-hour light cycle, they would eat a ton of plants as well. But for a large part of the year, they were centered around these animal fats. And really, evolutionarily speaking, the colder the environment, the more fat the mammals of that region are going to have to put on. Again, just for survivability. doesn't matter if it's you know, caribou species or humans, you need some insulation to keep your organs functioning. Properly. And so that's why you see a lot of the big game in northern latitudes, right? Mastodons and woolly mammoths, right? That you think of kind of those Pleistocene megafauna that are unfortunately now extinct, but they were giant because they needed to be giant. They needed a big fat layer and they needed a large body just to contend with the elements, especially during an ice age. And if you compare that to a place like the equator, you don't see huge megafauna hanging out at the equator because you don't need all that insulation to stay warm because it's warm essentially all year. You have a dry season and a wet season and that's it. What you see at the equator is you see fruit and you see smaller game. Even if it's the same species, let's say a deer species, something like access deer that were predominantly in India, in the southern regions, were small, they're tiny. You get maybe 30 pounds of meat off of a little access deer. So, same species, very different size proportionately due to environment and due to weather. And we'll talk more about kind of UV and how that plays into this later on. But it's important to note why and when fat needs to get utilized. Because animals put on fat in the fall. That's why deer season is in the fall because that's when the deer are the heaviest. They're the fattest. They're going to be the most tender and the best eating in the fall because they're preparing their bodies for winter. Okay, so what does this have to do with the fat that we eat? So right now in the nutrition field, there are two types of quote unquote bad fat. They are A, saturated fat and B, trans fats. Saturated fat, as it may sound, is fat that is structurally solid at room temperature. And what that means chemically is that it has double bonds, double hydrogen bonds that kind of bind those oils up, those lipids up, so they aren't liquid. Something like butter or essentially most animal fats. Those are all saturated fats. Whereas fats derived from plants that's unsaturated fat, for the most part anyway. There are some exceptions like coconut oil, meaning that they have single bonds connecting them together. So polyunsaturated fat, that just means many unsaturated fat bonds. And then you also have things like olive oil, which is a monounsaturated fat. The conventional approach right now is that unsaturated fats are the best for lowering your cholesterol and the best for heart health. That's what you're going to see time and time and time again in the literature and in most research. Okay, so this battle between saturated and unsaturated fats, when did this start and what is going on with this? Because if you look at it from an anthropological perspective, we weren't getting a ton of unsaturated fats 
all of the time like we are today. We were getting a lot of saturated fat as well. So clearly things have shifted. And really, they shifted in the 1950s because they weren't even really giving fat recommendations until then. It honestly was considered kind of a health food. They used it to treat constipation and all sorts of different things. If you were recovering from an illness, they encouraged you to eat a high saturated fat diet. So where did it all shift? Where did it all change? It all started with what was called the diet heart hypothesis. And this was honestly a hypothesis that was derived from a single person. His name was Ansel Keys. He was the guy who developed K-rations for the army in World War II. He did a lot of research with starvation and refeeding and how to properly refeed people that had been starving to death. He was a physiologist and then he got really interested in cholesterol and he did one of the biggest epidemiological research studies at the time. He went to 22 different countries and used observational data and questionnaires to figure out what people were eating and he basically used data points to average out who was quote-unquote the healthiest and who lived the longest, which was pretty amazing research at the time. No one had ever really approached anything like that. And I would argue useful. But what ended up happening as a result of that has got a little bit off the rails. So he ended up using only seven of the 22 countries that he went to and collected data from, which some people claim is pretty suspicious because when you look at all of the countries instead of just the seven that he published and talked about, things look a little bit different. He was essentially the founder of the Mediterranean diet and he advocated for a plant-based approach to a Mediterranean diet where they were eating a lot of mono and polyunsaturated fats, things like olive oil and fresh vegetables. And what he saw was they had a far less risk of cardiovascular disease and high cholesterol. And this being kind of the biggest population study and the only population study to approach multiple countries like this on this big of a scale, it was a huge undertaking for the time. Scientists had been messing around with lipoparticles that they would spin down from fat and they would test them in lab settings to see how cholesterol interacted with different tissues. So th there were some theories floating around about the mechanism and the role that cholesterol played in the body and whether it was good or bad to kind of manage your cholesterol and your fat intake. And what this study went to show is that if you have low cholesterol, typically you're going to have better health out. And that's essentially the same narrative we're playing off of today. That's the thing with a huge landmark study like that. A lot of times it'll get parroted for generations and generations because it's so big, right? The bigger the study, it's like you're at the pinnacle of research, but there's more variables and there's more factors to go wrong when you're doing such a massive study, especially based off of observation and questionnaires because people lie. And what if myopically focusing on this molecule we call cholesterol was not necessarily the best thing to be focusing on? So it's from this seven countries study that was done back in the 50s that we have basically used as the foundation to look at cholesterol and the role that it plays to either be helpful in the body or harmful in the body. So 
cholesterol? Is it a friend or a foe? Well, it now turns out it's not necessarily extremely clear. All of you listening have heard the term good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. And that is maybe the most simplistic thing you could possibly do to this molecule we call cholesterol. Because when we refer to bad cholesterol, we refer to what is LDL cholesterol, or low-density lipoprotein. So lipoproteins are the shuttles that carry cholesterol into your tissues, into small vessels. That's all they are. It's a vehicle. It's a car that carries your cholesterol into tissue. Whereas HDL, your quote-unquote good cholesterol, or high-density lipoprotein, carries cholesterol out of the tissues. Are you with me on that? So one carries it in because tissues need cholesterol for repair and for steroidal repair, and all of your cell membranes are made up of cholesterol, but then cholesterol needs to be exited out back to the liver where it can be stored as triglycerides. And that's what HDL does. So one brings it in, one brings it out. It's like hiring two different Uber drivers to take you someplace. You got to get someplace, the Uber driver leaves, you hang out for a few hours, do your thing, you get another Uber, and you go back home, right? It doesn't mean that one is bad and one is good. One Uber driver, because he gets you there, isn't bad. He just did his job and left. The Uber driver who takes you back home isn't any better. That's like saying a vein is worse than an artery because a vein goes one direction and an artery goes the other direction. So it's a very, very simplistic way to look at cholesterol. And this is the prevailing hypothesis that has been touted since the early 50s, is that if you have too much LDL, then it'll stick in the arteries and stick in the tissues and form plaque. And then if your HDL is just too low, then it can't get out of there. So it messes with the transport, essentially is the theory. I'm drastically simplifying things a bit. But that's kind of what doctors talk about when they talk about an elevated LDL compared to your HDL, is that you have too much of it going into the arteries, and it forms atherosclerosis, so hardening of the arterial wall, that plugs things up versus your HDL that gets it out of there. Okay, so this is how we've modeled this disease of elevated cholesterol and heart disease. We've modeled it off of this very, very simplistic version of cholesterol that is now starting to finally get some attention and get some redirect. And I'll get into what's happening in one quick second, but I want to flip back into saturated versus polyunsaturated fats. So it's theorized that saturated fats elevate your quote-unquote bad cholesterol, that they elevate your LDL and lower your HDL, and that polyunsaturated fats will elevate your HDL and lower your LDL. Okay? This is what is broadly accepted to be the unequivocal truth in all the various different disciplines. But what if we didn't have the whole story? What if we focused too much on cholesterol? and not enough on our good friend oxidation. A lot of work is now coming to light that it's oxidation of the LDL particles that actually cause the damage, 
not the LDL itself. Remember, oxidation promotes free radical damage. Free radical damage damages tissues. So therefore, having oxidated LDL, essentially heightened free radical damage throughout your body, and then consuming fats that tend to elevate that LDL, will start to damage and create lesions on the inside of the arteries. And then you have biofilms, quote-unquote plaque, that are there to plug the weakened arterial walls. But it's a process that keeps happening over and over and over again until the walls get thick and plugged up. That's the new hypothesis. It's a question of metabolic health. Because really, you're talking about metabolism. You're talking about a breakdown of complex fatty chains into smaller chains, triglycerides, monoglycerides, that can flow in and out of tissues and through the bloodstream. And so if you have a compromised LDL particle size, or it's getting oxidized as it's being shuttled through your body, it's going to cause damage. And then if you have low HDL, then that oxidation is going to sit there, and it's going to cause more damage. So this is adding complexity to an older hypothesis that it's all about your LDL cholesterol and you have good cholesterol and bad cholesterol and really that's the whole story. That's part of the story, but it's absolutely not the whole story. And there's a lot of other factors that contribute to atherosclerosis or cardiovascular disease. So this new hypothesis is now one that's been proven many times over because it turns out if you look at victims of heart attack and of atherosclerosis, their LDL can be very, very low and they still have damage. So therefore having an excess of just LDL doesn't actually cause the damage. It's the oxidation of that LDL. Even if your LDL is super low, even if it's, let's say, 100, if it's oxidized, it's going to be damaging. And you see that time and time again with people. Because people have been hyper-focused on getting their bad cholesterol down, but not focused on keeping free radicals at bay by enhancing their antioxidants. But yet, we're stuck in a paradigm of it's all about LDL cholesterol. But really, honestly, truly, it's really about the oxidation rate of that LDL cholesterol. And that's now a test you can actually go and get. You can get your oxidation rates measured. So if you're somebody who's naturally prone to high LDL, and even if you have a really good diet and you're trying to get it super low, it might not matter. Because if you have enough antioxidants that are fighting free radical damage, then it probably won't be oxidizing quickly. And you can go get that check. So eat, you could be somebody with your LDL that's through the roof and have very little oxidation of that LDL, and you'll have no damaging effects to your arteries or arterial walls. So what is going on? Why are heart attacks on the rise, and why have they been on the rise for, well, since the 1900s? If you look at oxidation rates of polyunsaturated fatty acids, they oxidize very, very quickly, whether they're in your body or outside of your body. So things derived from seed oils especially, cottonseed oil, soybean oil, corn, any of those oils oxidize extremely quickly, especially when exposed to UV light. So if you're using something like canola oil or rapeseed oil, you're subjecting your body to high oxidative stress when you're consuming those oils. And that's not a good thing because you're creating free radical damage inside 
your body. And when you do that, when you get bits of LDL in there, you can end up creating an environment that actually damages your arteries, even when you're trying to lower your LDL and heighten your HDL. Do you see what I'm getting at? So stable fats, saturated fats, the ones that are solid at room temperature, the ones that have the double bonds, don't oxidize as quickly because they're more stable. They have double bonds securing them together. Therefore, animal fats, even though they heighten LDL, which they absolutely do, they will heighten your LDL cholesterol, no doubt about it. But the question is, are they oxidizing it? And are you getting enough antioxidants in your diet to combat any type of oxidation that's going on from those animal foods? And you have other metabolic risk factors, like diabetes, or are you overweight or obese? Because those things start playing into it as well. Things like elevated triglycerides that are flowing through your body and stored in your liver. If you have elevated triglycerides, then that's another risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So there's other lifestyle and metabolic disorders that play into cardiovascular disease. It's not only about cholesterol. That's just a component. Because people have evolved eating animal fat for millions of years. And what, did we magically change overnight in the 1950s? I doubt it. Evolution doesn't change that quickly. So what changed in the 1950s to start getting huge increases in cardiovascular disease? Let's look at it. Look at the food tech that was coming out of the 1950s. TV dinners, right? Frozen foods that started utilizing these types of oils. Margarine, Crisco. Crisco started out as a plant oil from cottonseed that was supposed to be used in soap making and then got ultra popularized in the 1980s, but had been around since 1911. People were using it. And these types of oils basically ended up in convenience foods. And that's still what we find them in. I mean, you go pick up any type of packaged food in the supermarket and it's usually got soybean oil or canola oil in it because these are easy fats to get in because they they're not solid at room temperature they're oils and they're cheaply made by industry but they oxidize you're eating oxidated food and oils when you're consuming any type of packaged food that has soybean oil or canola oil in it the other thing that was majorly happening in the 1950s was smoking a huge huge portion of the population was smoking in the 1950s. What does smoking do? It increases free radical damage drastically. It's terrible for your health. We know that it increases cardiovascular risk. So what I'm saying is by honing in only on the mechanism of cholesterol, we've missed out on many, many different factors that could be damaging our bodies and contributing to heart disease. We've missed out on the oxidation piece completely up until a few decades ago. Things like asbestos. Think about all of the kind of loose safety regulations against these kind of novel chemicals that were used in the 1950s after the war. You had things like DDT. So all of these kind of wartime advances in technology ended up filtering their way back into the consumer market. And it paved a way for ill health. And we're still in the quagmire of that today. And it's a tough one to get out of. Because yes, if you look at saturated fats and trans fats, 
they elevate LDL. And if you think that LDL is bad, and if you think it's the culprit, that's the story you're going to keep repeating over and over and over again, right? And if you don't know, you don't know. But if you're a cardiovascular doctor, you better damn well know. You better be on the cutting edge of research, even if it's a bit fringe and kind of hard to fit in the mold you're used to fitting things in. That's what you should be doing as a scientist, is questioning the current narrative and the current paradigm. And some are. Some have been really good about that. I've linked to all these studies that I've talked about. So you guys feel free to look at them yourselves and kind of come up with your own conclusions. I don't want to sway you one way or another, but this is kind of where I stand at this moment. Because if you really look at cholesterol as a whole entity, as kind of a holistic approach to your cells and the way that it functions in your body, it doesn't make a lot of sense to demonize the transport mechanism that delivers cholesterol to the cells and glorify the one that gets it out of there. It just conceptually doesn't make a lot of sense. There's other factors at play. There's things missing. And really, I think it's oxidation. I'm sure there's more things that I'm unaware of. But it's something to really pay attention to in the next coming decades, because I think we're going to see a very different story surrounding fat in the coming decades. Animal fat is starting to get popularized again. And this is why, because people are realizing demonizing saturated fat isn't necessarily answer, and it's not keeping people healthier. As a matter of fact, cutting saturated fat out of your diet tends to make you sicker, because then you're leaning on these polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats that can be damaging if they're oxidized and if you have too much free radical damage in your body cause an over-oxidation response. So I'm going to talk about fat metabolism a little bit and I'll try to simplify it as much as I possibly can, but I want you to get an idea of the systems that are involved in the breakdown, the digestion of fat, because I think there's a tendency to think that fat and eating excess fat will make you fat, that will be stored as fat. But the body utilizes so much fat. Again, all of your cells are predominantly fat. Your liver uses fat. Your organs use fat for energy. It's a dense energy source. Remember, it's 9 kilocalories per gram. There's a lot of energy that is utilized from fat. All right, so fat metabolism. So it actually starts in your mouth by an enzyme called liguinal lipase. Fat then travels to the stomach where you have gastric lipase as an enzyme, starting to digest it and break it down. And then pancreatic enzymes start breaking it down. So pancreatic lipase, enzymes from bile that your liver produces and then stores in your gallbladder, start breaking this fat down. It then kind of cleaves it off into what are triglycerides. They're the most common fat in the body. They're stored in the liver, and then they are synthesized when you need fat, when your tissues need repair, when the cell membranes need repair, any type of mechanism like that, you're going to have triglycerides that are released. And then you have kind of free fatty acids that are also kind of involved in that process. So that's why things like diabetes and insulin response can be hindered by obesity. Because again, the pancreas and the enzymes in the pancreas are responsible for signaling. And so there's a hormonal and metabolism component to it. That's why if triglycerides are really high, it's associated with liver and pancreas problems. Because that 
starts blocking those enzymatic pathways and hormonal channels that keep things regulated and in homeostasis. So if you have some type of fat metabolism issue, especially if you're obese, you're going to have more free-flowing kind of fatty acids. You're going to have more free fatty acids in your body at one time than a normal weight individual. And that can lead to more and more oxidation. And so yes, eating a plant-based diet and eating polyunsaturated fats, especially it lowers LDL, cholesterol. But it doesn't much matter if all of the oxidation and all the free radical damage is still there. Because you need both. You need saturated fats. You need polyunsaturated fats. Again, we're back to a varied diet of not only animal foods and plant foods, but of all the different species and kingdoms. So if you overfeed on one, of course there's going to be imbalance. Cholesterol is a central component to the body. It is essential. You'll die without it. You need it for repair because cholesterol flips into a steroid and you need cholesterol. Otherwise, you would die if you got injured or if you couldn't repair your cells. I mean, there isn't anybody who disagrees that you need cholesterol. Where people disagree is what kind of dietary cholesterol are you getting in? Because plants make cholesterol too. They're in an esterified version or a a sterile version of cholesterol. But they synthesize cholesterol essentially the same way that we do. There is cholesterol in plants. And it's not negligible. It's actually can be a pretty substantial amount that you can receive from plants. It's not a very popular opinion, especially if in a vegan or vegetarian uh, mindset. You know, it's that you're you don't need dietary cholesterol, that your body's going to synthesize everything it needs. And that's true to some extent. I mean, you'll have very low LDL. Uh, and if you're leading a good, healthy lifestyle where you're not taking in a bunch of pro-oxidative foods, you should be okay. Um, and you see that with vegans. Typically, they're leading a healthier lifestyle than someone who's eating a standard American diet. And that's typically why you're not seeing as much cardiovascular disease in vegan populations. Now, there are other health risks and concerns eating that type of diet, but it does kind of tick that box of cardiovascular health. So really, what I'm kind of talking about here is more convenience foods and a standard American diet, you know, things that are pro-oxidative to the body and that will cause free radical damage and cause these checks and balances to kind of run amok and basically lead to atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease down the line, or at the very least, a risk of those diseases. So if we go with this hypothesis of it's not good or bad cholesterol, it's how the cholesterol is oxidizing and at the rate the cholesterol is oxidizing and the various other metabolic risk factors somebody may have, like type 2 diabetes or being obese, I want to talk about some things that create oxidative stress in the body or free radical damage in the body. UV being one of them. So ultraviolet light, whether it's UVA or UVB, is going to cause some free radical damage in your skin. Hence, why there's so much fruit growing at the equator and why there's less need for tons of fat because you're getting UV damage at the equator constantly, okay? You need antioxidants and high vitamin C content and a little bit lower fat to fight that hormetic effect of 
ultraviolet radiation that you're going to bombarded with if you're living out in the wild. Whereas in the northern latitude, again, let's go back to the Arctic Circle, you have essentially no daylight for many, many, many months when you're getting your higher fat content, meaning you're not getting UV radiation and free radical damage as much in your body because it's dark. You see what I'm getting at? And the alternative to that is in the summer months, you have 24 hours of daylight essentially. And that's when you get rapid, rapid plant growth. And all of those animals that you've been hunting in the winter months are feeding on those plants and feeding on the grasses. Get uninterrupted photosynthesis if you're a plant and you're in above kind of the Arctic Circle or near the Arctic Circle. You're getting, you're getting 24 hours of daylight. Rapid growth and utilization of those plants is at a premium in that time of the year. So it's very cyclical. You're super heavy into the animal proteins and fats on one end of the year, and then you're super heavy into the plant foods and berries and antioxidants on the other end of the year. And you've done enough to keep an overall balance throughout the span of the seasons. So again, if you keep in cadence with the seasons and keep in step with the foods that are naturally occurring around you, you're going to be far better off and you're not going to have to wonder if you're overeating fat and under eating antioxidants because you can just go with what's at hand and what's accessible. That's what we've always done as a human species. It's just now we have access to everything and we can get anything any time of the year. And we've domesticated a ton of different animals and plants and changed their genetic profiles. And so we're not getting medicinal compounds like we once were in plants. We're not getting the same amino acid profiles as we once were in animals. And it's affecting our health. And it starts messing with these things. It starts jacking up our cholesterol and our oxidation rates. And we get into some massively choppy, dicey territory that have a tendency to lead to these chronic lifestyle diseases that we're battling so much as a world population now. And so, man, this is an important aspect, you know. Instead of demonizing fat and demonizing cholesterol and trying to elevate one over the other, I think it might be time to take a step back and look at this a little more nuanced. Try to figure out if there's anything else at play in this equation. So is there something we missed? And I really do think that this idea of oxidation and free radical damage is paramount to this discussion. And I think that the more people can load up on their antioxidants in the summer months in, in the winter months with things like chaga and reishi and these wonderful medicinal mushrooms that come into play in the winter months because you get antioxidants in many t different types of food. And in the fungi community, there are wonderful antioxidants and they're wonderful foods to be incorporating into your diet. And they modulate your immune system, which is how people in northern latitudes got their antioxidants in the winter months. That's how they were balancing out those saturated fats that were coming in. You know, they didn't have rose hips to feast on in December. But there was things like chaga and there was lichen. There was things around that they used as medicinal compounds to enhance the antioxidants in their body to fight that free radical dam and to fight the pro-oxidative state that only eating saturated fat for months and months could potentially bring. And so again, keeping a five kingdom approach to nutrition, as I talk about 
every podcast. This is where this type of thing comes into play. You're proactive with things to keep your body in balance with the season. I mean, your ancestors have done the work for you. They survived without industry, without polyunsaturated synthesized oils from cottonseed and rapeseed. The question is, are you going to pay attention and are you going to incorporate the lessons that have already been learned the hard way to keep your own body healthy and to keep your own family going? Because the work's been done. The body of knowledge is there. And as technology gets more and more advanced, it's easier to focus on these single kind of drivers of health, whether it's single isolated metabolites or secondary metabolites that come about from digestion or single molecules like cholesterol and the action that that performs. It gets easier and easier to get more nuanced and more myopic. But I think the more challenging thing to do is to put it all into a larger context, to put it into an anthropological context and try to marry the two ideologies together. That's how you achieve prolonged health throughout your life. Technology has a tendency to get overly myopic and claim that it has all the answers because the science and the technology is just getting better and better. And that's true to some extent, but when you leave out a key factor, then it can throw the whole thing completely off the rails and cause massive health consequences that can take generations to start popping up. And I think this is the story of cholesterol. And this is the story of LDL and the fat battles that have been going on since the 1950s. I think we've missed out on oxidation. So I really, I hope to see that back in the fold a little bit more in the coming decades. But if it isn't, then you know what to do. Focus your attention on your overall metabolic health. If you have type 2 diabetes, deal with it. If you're obese, then deal with it. Focus on getting good, solid, adequate nutrition throughout the year that's in cadence with the seasons that you're living your life in. And you're going to be far better off in every system of your body, not just in your cardiovascular health, but in the way things break down and the way nutrients are utilized and the way you feel is going to be far better. Alrighty, that's going to do it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening if you've made it this far. And I will talk to you guys this next week. Stay well, stay healthy, get outside. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners.